0: Monday Baptist Confession. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad that You have given us voices to lift them up to You to sing Your praises. We who were once Your enemies, we who deserve Your judgment, we who have broken every law that You've ever given us to obey, and yet You have redeemed us. And so it is our joy to sing praises to the God of our salvation. You are the rock and refuge, the stronghold to Your people, In You we find deliverance from judgment and death and destruction. Lord, we forget none of Your benefits. You're the one that has delivered us from the grave, the pit of destruction. You're the one that has healed us of our diseases. You're the one that has given us life and breath and all things. For in You we live, move, and have our being. You're the one that preserves us in our being. You're the one that has given us food to eat, water to drink, fruitful seasons from heaven, you've not left us without a witness, you're the God who has sustained the universe by the word of your power, and even more so, you're the God who has sent redemption to your people through the person and work of your glorious Son, and for that we're grateful. As we gather now on the Lord's day, the dawn of a new creation, to worship our risen Savior, we pray that you would help us to do so in spirit and truth, to do so with sincerity of heart, with passion of heart, clarity of mind, singular devotion to the Savior. And we pray that as we study the confession now as a tool to get us into the Word and to consider what the Scripture teaches categorically and systematically with regard to certain Christian biblical truths, we pray You would help us to understand these truths. We pray You would give us a clearer view of Your glory and that You would deepen our love for You, that we might more reflect the image of Your Son. And we pray these things for His glory. Amen. Alright, if you have your copy of the Confession, you can turn with me to page 14. And if you do not have a copy, we should have, uh, I believe we still have some copies up there in a the box at the front. But page 14, we're just working our way chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph through this wonderful Confession. And again, the Confession is not uh, inspired by God, right? This is not the Word of God. This is, I believe, just a wonderful summary of biblical truth. But like all human writings, it is certainly subject to error, and that's why the Bible is our ultimate commentary on the confession. But the confession is a tool to get us to think about systematic biblical truth and to give us clarity with regard to what the Scripture teaches uh, in these areas. Uh, So far, we've went through chapter 1. We've been on the study for, I don't know, five weeks now. We've made it through chapter 1. And uh, that was on the Holy Scriptures. We started with what the Bible teaches about itself. Even though God is what we could call the principium of theology, theology starts there, it begins with God. Uh, In fact, the word theology is two words, theos, God, logos, word. It's words about God, the study of God. And so God is the center of theology, but everything we believe theologically about God comes from where? The Bible. So we have to begin by establishing the authority and the validity and the veracity of the Bible. Now, having done that, having discussed the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the extent of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, having discussed all of those things, we now come to chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. Uh, there are three paragraphs here, and uh, the three paragraphs outline themselves very nicely. Paragraph 1, we're going to see the attributes of God, the attributes of God. In paragraph 2, we're going to see the relations of God, that is how God relates to us as His creatures. And then in paragraph 3, we're going to see uh, the triunity of God, the triunity of God. Let's start with this first paragraph. Hopefully, we'll get through it all this week. Uh, You'll notice there's only three paragraphs in chapter 2, so we actually have a chance. But... uh, You know, more than likely we'll get through one paragraph, but we'll try. We'll try our best. So, paragraph two, or chapter two, starting in paragraph one. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of His own unchangeable and completely righteous will for His own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient, He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek Him diligently. At the same time, He is perfectly just and terrifying in His judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. What a glorious paragraph on our God. What are some of the attributes of God that you either notice there or maybe that you just think of when you think about God? What are some things... They come to your mind when you think about God. What is God like? Perfect. God is perfect, right? I mean, that's probably the best word we could use. God is perfect in everything. Every way. God is He's perfect in His attributes. He's perfect in His works. Perfect in His nature. God is perfect. What else? I don't think I saw in there was it's actually kind of a There's one word. <laughs> At the very end, there's one word. In every way, infinite, absolutely holy. That was it. Just one little passing comment on the holiness of God. But yeah, He's holy. He's holy. What does that mean? Everything... That paragraph Everything that's true. God's holiness is a reference to all that He is, right? He's set apart, incomparable, none like God, and specifically, morally, He's set apart from sin to righteousness, to that which is good and just. What are some other things that come to your mind when you think about God? God is holy. He's perfect. What else? What are some misconceptions our culture has of God? What do people in our culture say about God? What are some lies that are... Pervade today about our God. That He accepts everybody and you just try to do the right thing. Yeah. No, no. Just do the right thing. Right? Be a good person. God will forgive you. You know, there's no way God can send a good old boy to hell, right? No way. So God just accepts everybody. The confession makes that clear that that's not the case, right? He's terrifying in His judgments. What else? What are some other lies about God? accepts everybody. What are some lies about God? I mean, think about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. What do they say about God? How many persons is God to the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is He three persons? Or he's just one person, right? What about uh, the Muslims? What do they say about God? Does God have a son according to Islam? No, God doesn't have a son. Right? God's one person doesn't have a son. So there's many lies in our culture about God. And the problem is not when Muslims distort the truth about God, we get that, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, etc., but when evangelicals, evangelicals, those who say they believe the evangel, the euangelion, the gospel, when those people distort the truth about God, that's when it's really problematic. And so the confession serves kind of as a, uh, some guardrails that keep us in bounds, keep us within the realm of orthodoxy. So let me uh, enumerate some attributes of God for you here. There are several of them. More than ten, but uh, we'll look at them one at a time. So first of all, we see the singularity of God, or the exclusivity of God. We see that in the first statement there. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. So according to the confession, how many gods are there? One. One. Is that biblical? Yes, the Bible teaches that there's only one God. Can you think of any verses that teach that? Without looking at the footnotes here? <laughs> Deuteronomy 6. Dude, she looked at the footnote? No. Nah. Deuteronomy 6. <laughs> <laughs> what does Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 say? Does anyone know? Uh, um, i God and one alone. So That's close say. enough. It, it, it's the basic Jewish word that they repeated all the time. Right, so it's called the Shema from the first Hebrew word for here. The Jews recited it daily. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So there's one God, and that God is one. That God is one being, one divine being, one God, there is no other. But there are many other verses that teach that. There's a few listed here. The other one is 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. That just says that there's no such thing as an idol, and there is no God but one. There's one God. Jesus affirmed that in John 17, 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. According to Jesus, there's only one God. Uh, But there are some really powerful verses. Go to Isaiah 43. There are so many statements in Isaiah that affirm the singularity of God, that uh, I don't know how anyone could come to any other conclusion. So Isaiah 43, this is called monotheism, monotheism uh, from two words, mono meaning one and theos, God. There's one God, all other gods are false gods. Jehovah's Witnesses try to say that there are many gods, and that God, the Father, in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe what we could call henotheism. It's the idea that there are many gods, but there's one chief god. So there's a lot of gods in the world, but Jehovah is the eternal and chief god over them all. But there are really gods out there. The angels are gods. Demons are gods, they would say. Jesus is just one of these angels. He's just a god. He's Michael the archangel. And so they, they categorize the gods like this. There's Almighty God, that's Jehovah. That's Jehovah. And then there's mighty gods like Jesus and angels and so forth. But the Bible's category of gods is this. It's true or false. True or false. Jesus says, you are the only true God. So if Jesus isn't the true God, he's got to be a false God. So there's, there's no category of all-powerful and, and almighty and mighty. There's true and false. Jesus is either the true God or he's a false God. And we know he's the true God. So look at Isaiah 43. And I want to start reading in verse 10. Verse 10. Funny thing is, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses get their name from, by the way. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares in the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. It's pretty conclusive, isn't it? How many gods are there according to Isaiah? There's one. Was there even a God before Yahweh? Was there a God created after Yahweh, like an angel? No, there's not even a created God after Him. He is the only God. Uh, Then you keep going, verse 11, "...I, even I, am Yahweh. There is no Savior besides Me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are My witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He." And there is none who can deliver out of my hand, I act, and who can reverse it. I go to chapter 44. Just another page to the right, chapter 44. And uh, Isaiah, or better yet, the Lord through Isaiah continues to affirm His singularity. Verse 6 through 8. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock I know of none? It's very ironic that the Jehovah's Witnesses get their name for the very passage that denies their theology, right? Very ironic. That's kind of how it usually works. But according to Isaiah, there is only one true God. So that's the singularity or the exclusivity of God. But secondly, we see the self-existence of God or the independency of God or another big theological word used to describe this attribute is the aseity of God. The aseity, the two words mean from oneself. From itself. And we see that in the second statement here. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. So what does it mean that God is self-existent? What are some implications of that? If God is self-existent, what logically flows from that? Does God need us? Does God depend upon us? Well, God existed before we ever did. And He was doing just fine, wasn't He? He didn't make us because there was something lacking in Him. He didn't create us because He was bored and lonely in eternity. God has all He needs in and of Himself. He made us simply because He willed to make us to display His glory. But God has all He needs in and of Himself. So this idea that you know if you don't come to Jesus, God's going to spend all of eternity weeping, eternal tears, it's just not biblical. God doesn't need you anymore. God is self-sufficient, but in His grace and in His sovereign mercy He's chosen to save us so that we can share in His glory forever. That's a merciful God. So God's self-existence, let's go to uh, there's a few verses mentioned here and some I'll add. Uh, Jeremiah 10:10. 10, 10. Jeremiah 10:10. 10, 10. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 says, "But the Lord is the true God." He is the living God and the everlasting King. and his wrath the, At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. So He's the living God. He's the true God. God does not derive His life from something else. Have you ever heard this question, Who made God? <clears throat> You've heard that from skeptics. What's the answer? Nobody. Nobody, Nobody made God. What came before God? Nothing. Nothing. He's the first and the last, right? He is the source of all being. He is being itself. All being, all life derives itself from God. God depends on no one for His existence. Now go to Isaiah 48 again. Isaiah 48. I want to read you verse 12. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. I've already quoted this to you, but we'll read it anyway. Isaiah 48 verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called, I am he, I am the first and I am the last. So God is the first and the last. He depends on no one for his being. He exists in and of himself. Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. Moses is asking God, because God tells him, look, you need to go to Israel, go to the Israelites, go to the Egyptians, tell Egypt God has sent me, you need to let my people go. And Moses says, what is your name, God? And what does God say? I am. I am. I am who I am. That's where we get the name Yahweh from, by the way. The Hebrew verb there is Hayah. You can hear the name Yahweh there. And the verb means to be, to exist. So God is who He is. He exists in and of Himself. He is the eternally self-existing God. God depends upon no one. Any thoughts or comments or questions on that so far? I like your trench coat. Thanks. So God is self-existent. Number three, the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. We see that uh, several places in this chapter. The first one, first time we see that is in uh, the third sentence here. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. Can we fully and comprehensively know God? No. Of course not. God is infinite and we are finite. We could sooner believe and know everything there is to know about God as soon as a small glass could be filled with all of the waters of the oceans. That's absolutely impossible because the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. So we can't fully know God. We can't fully comprehend God. We can't exhaustively know God. But can we know God at all? Yeah, we can know things about God, right? We just learn things about God here. We know that God is incomprehensible. That's something about God. We can't fully comprehend God, but we can know He's incomprehensible, right? We, we can't exhaust the knowledge of God, but we can have a saving understanding of who He is and be in a relationship with Him. So when we say that God's incomprehensible, we do not mean that God is this far-off deity that we know nothing about, and we just serve as slaves, and we'll never have any community with Him at all. What we're meaning is, though we have communion with God, though we know God and love God and are known by God, we can't exhaust God. We can't know everything there is to know about God. Let's look at some of these passages here. Some of them, again, are mentioned in the footnotes. go to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. Apostle Paul comes to the end of uh, this wonderful doctrinal treatise on the gospel. And Paul is astonished as he considers the glory of God in the cross, in the gospel. And in verses 33 to 36, he bursts into this doxology of praise to the God of the gospel. This is Paul's conclusion as he thinks about the wonders of the gospel. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and unfathomable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a fitting response to the Gospel. it. Just to be blown away by the sheer majesty... Of God, now according to this passage, can we search out God's judgments? Can we fully fathom His ways? No, no. Deuteronomy says that uh, the things revealed belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord our God. God hasn't even revealed everything about Himself, and even if He did, our finite minds would explode because He is infinite. We cannot fully exhaust the knowledge of God. I go to Job, Book of Job. Job is uh, considered by most scholars to be the first book of the Bible ever written. Genesis obviously covers earlier history, but Gen- Job was probably written first. This is before the time of Abraham. Job has no Scripture, by the way. Now, we, we know more about God than Job did. Because we have a record of Job's life from the divine side. Job had very very little knowledge of God compared to what we have today. And Job knew that. And listen to what Job says, or in this case, it's actually Zophar speaking and rebuking Job. Job 11, verse 7. Starting in verse 7. Can you discover the depths of God? What's the answer? No. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. God doesn't even have to investigate. God just knows it. He doesn't have to write up, get a book out and take notes. God knows everything and we know very little compared to the infinite knowledge of God. Now go to chapter 36. Job 36. Essentially, what we should realize is that if we knew everything there was to know about God, God would not be God. Or, to put it another way, we would be God. If we could exhaustively know know God, we would be God. Of course, that's not the case. So chapter 36, starting in verse 26. 36 verse 26. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know Him. The number of His years is unsearchable. For he draws up the drops of water, they distill rain from the mist. This is amazing, isn't it? The Bible speaking about the hydrological cycle, the uh, the way the water evaporates and comes back out. No one knew that in Job's day, by the way, except for God. We, we don't even fully get how that works. How does the water of the oceans go back into the sky and fall back? I mean, I don't even get that. But God is the one that does it. He's exalted. We don't know him. He draws up the drops of water, they distill rain from the mist, verse 28, which the Clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? The thundering of his pavilion? That's when we start Googling what is a pavilion and how do the clouds work. But Google doesn't have all the answers, does it? Uh, pavilion just like an open air structure. So it just means the sky in a sense. I don't need Google. I got Joey. Good job. <laughs> there we go. We're going to call it Jugal. <laughs> Verse 29, Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of His pavilion? Behold, He spreads the lightning about Him and covers the depths of the sea. For by these He judges the peoples, He gives food in abundance, He covers His hands with the lightning, He commands it to strike the mark. Its noises declares His presence, the cattle also concerning what is coming up. just Glory. This is God. God is beyond searching out. You cannot exhaustively know God. And we could look at more verses. 37.5 says, God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Can't get it all. Psalm 145.3, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That's the God of the Bible. Exhaustive, infinite, glorious, and beyond. Searching out. With that being the case, what is maybe an application to that? If God is is incomprehensible, beyond searching out, an infinitely glorious being, what what is maybe an application for us from that? Meaning that we can't do anything of our own to seek Him. us into Him. So, if we're going to have any knowledge of God, it comes from God. He He draws us. He reveals Himself to us. We'll talk about that in 1 John 2 today. What else? Should Bible reading ever be boring? As if, you know, we've kind of figured it all out. we got it all. You know, there's nothing left to learn. If we've gotten there, we're puffed up, aren't we? The incomprehensibility of God should keep us humble and keep us diligently and zealously and passionately seeking after more of His glory. Because we will spend all of eternity, considering the glories of God in the face of Christ. And we should be, and we are privileged, with doing that now. That should be our joy. If you think about things like science and math and, you know, the things that you study in school and you're still finding out more and more and more. Right. Amen. And God's the know, source you, of all you that. You can think of them as being incomprehensible, but you can still learn more. Right. So, the same is true of God. Exactly. I find learning about God easier than learning about math. But God is infinite and math isn't. That's kind of strange, isn't it? But God is the source of mathematics, isn't He? I mean, God is the source of all of these things. We can't even exhaust knowledge that seemingly has nothing to do with God, even though it does, let alone things that are explicitly, directly related to God. All right, let's move on. So that's the incomprehensibility of God. Number four, we see the spirituality of God spirituality of God. That's in the next statement there. Um, That's, I think, the fourth sentence. He is a perfectly pure spirit. Perfectly pure spirit. What is a spirit? How how would you define a spirit? You can't see it. Exactly. It's invisible. Exactly. It's an immaterial existence. It comes from the Greek word pneuma, which is where we get pneumonia from, and it means breath. You don't see breath. You can't see it. You can't... Well, I guess in New York you can. But you can't see spirit. Spirit is invisible and corporeal and material. In fact, the Confession goes on to say that exactly. It says uh, He's a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body parts or changeable emotions. So God is a spirit. right? What does John 4.24 say? God is spirit. God is spirit. We should worship Him in spirit and truth. So God is an invisible immaterial being we can't see god with our naked eye in his real essence he has to manifest himself hence the incarnation the god man the lord jesus is the revelation of god because god in his true and eternal essence is an invisible spirit and by the way that's not a reference to the holy spirit that's a reference to the very nature of god god in his being is an invisible spirit So that the Father, according to His true essence, is an invisible spirit. The Son, Jesus, according to His true nature, is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is obviously spirit. They all share the same divine, immaterial being. And we'll talk about the Trinity next week in more detail. But God is a spirit. And it says here that uh, He has no body, no parts. We get that. But then it says no changeable emotions. or The old rendering of the Confession says no passions. Uh, this is where we get into what uh, theologians call the impassibility of God. or uh, In other words, some theologians say that God has no emotivity. He has no emotions at all. And I guess it would depend on how you define emotions. God obviously doesn't have emotions the way we do, right? Uh, when I'm watching a Tennessee football game, my emotions are greatly agitated based upon what's going on at the game, right? In the first half, we score a touchdown. We're winning. I'm like, yeah, we're going to beat Florida. I'm excited, singing Rocky Top, and then by the end of the game, I'm mad and angry and not feeling too good about it. So my emotions are raging. They're moving up and down. They're changing. God doesn't have emotions like that. God is not sitting in heaven and watching us, and then when we sin, He's like, oh, man, that hurts so bad. And then we do good, and He's like, yes, that feels so good. God, that's not the way God is. When God loves someone, that doesn't mean He has a fuzzy feeling in His heart. It means that God has determined to do good to someone, to enter into a covenant relationship with someone. When God hates someone or is angry with someone, that doesn't mean He's up in heaven throwing bowling balls and that's where you get thunder, right? That's not (laughs) how it works. That means that God has determined to set His face in judgment against someone. So God uses what we call anthropological language, that is human language, to speak of Himself because we can't comprehend Him. And so He'll use things like, you know, God was broken hearted or whatever. Language that's not exactly accurate, but it's trying to express to us in human language the way God responds to our actions. But God isn't up there, you know, biting His lip, screaming and throwing things. God is settled in His dispositions and in His perfections. Any thoughts or questions on that? Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, you're breaking God's heart? <laughs> it's just strange when they say that, isn't it? You know, Johnny. if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to break God's heart. But God, in reality, is perfect in Himself. His emotions, are, if you even use that word, are His fixed dispositions and His responses towards His people. And they never change, as we'll see in a minute. So that's God's uh, spirituality. Next, we come to what we could call uh, God's immutability. Does anyone know what that word means? Immutability. You will next time we'll go through the confession in ten years, I promise. God's immutability, it means unchangeable, right? God is unchangeable. Look at the confession again. So He has no body parts or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. That's still more of a spirituality. Then He says He is unchangeable. Unchangeable. God doesn't change. What does it mean that God doesn't change? He don't have to change. He doesn't have to change? That's true? Exactly. Because a perfect being wouldn't need to change, right? Exactly. Change implies that the being's not perfect. I need to change because I'm not perfect. I need to get better. If God changes, that means God had to get better. God had to be more God. God wasn't enough God. God wasn't good enough. That's obviously blasphemy. Now, when we say God doesn't change, we don't mean that God doesn't change the way He acts, right? I mean... Before I was a Christian, God's anger was upon me. Now that I'm a Christian, God's mercy is upon me. I'm under the saving grace of God in Christ. We don't mean that God doesn't do things differently in different eras. Of course He does. He got rid of the ceremonial law in the New Covenant. Uh, I'm convinced, for instance, that the uh, sign gifts have ceased. There's no more tongues and so forth. And people say, well, God, it doesn't change. That's not what that passage is talking about. That passage means that God, in His essence, never changes. God's attributes do not change. It's not like God is holy today, but next week He might be unholy. Or you know, God's good today, next week He might be evil. Or you know, God's just today and faithful today, next week He might be unjust and unfaithful. That would be a horrible way to live life, wouldn't it? To have a God that is subject to change. If God could change, could we trust His promises? No. The Scripture says that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Well, that might have been true, you know, in... 60 A.D., but God changed now. Maybe He'll forsake us now. No. God is always faithful, always true, always just, because God never changes. You can see some footnotes there. Malachi 3.6, the Lord says, I, the Lord, change not, therefore you're not consumed. God's people are not consumed because God never changes. You're not going to have to worry about losing your salvation because God never changes. His purposes never change. His mercy toward His people in Christ never changes. Hebrews thirteen seven says, or thirteen eight says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's perfect. He don't have to change, That's right? The perfect being. Right. Yeah. Amen. Doesn't need to change. Yep. So Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
1: All right. The next statement there. If
0: you think about it, if if God had was, if you were under God's wrath because you were an unbeliever. And because you're a Christian and have accepted Christ and asked for forgiveness, He 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 loves you and has mercy towards you. Well, who changed? The sinner. You, that's not God. That's right. I know. His, yeah, we got to change. His know. emotion was constant. We got, yeah, we got to change. Not God. You changed. Exactly. So exactly. So God is always wrathful toward those out of Christ and merciful to those in Christ. Nothing changes there. But when the sinner changes his relationship with God through faith in Jesus, of course God is the one that does that work ultimately. He's the sovereign one. But when we go from being in Adam to in Christ by faith, then God's response to us is no longer wrath but mercy because we change. Our relationship with Him changed, but not Him. Right? Very good. Um... We could keep going, but uh, there's so many more. I lied, we didn't even get through the first paragraph. So forgive me, we'll try next week. Uh, Let's just close with thoughts, comments, questions on all that we've looked at so far. How is this God different from some of the other gods in maybe mythology and even in our current religions today? He's perfect, he do not have to change, and the other ones are fake gods. They're fake gods, exactly. You missed that part. You were very good. We talked about yeah. true gods and fake gods. Exactly. That's exactly right. Good job. He doesn't have to prove himself to be God. He is already. That's, right. There's, there's God. That's right. Genesis one one. Does it start with a detailed philosophical argumentation for God's existence? No, it just asserts it. Right in the beginning, God. God existed. What what, what were some things that characterized the gods of mythology? You get Zeus and. And all these pagan gods. What what characterized these gods? Mm, like there's the god of wrath. There's the god of peace. There's the god of. There were all sorts of gods that I guess you could consider. And they were fighting, and they had wives and immorality. Yeah, they were basically, just humans with magic. Exactly, they're just glorified humans, aren't they? Okay. I mean, they have vices, they're evil, they're wicked. I mean, these are the gods of the nations. The God of the Bible, you can't even make a God up like this. He is transcendently perfect, infinitely glorious. I mean, you can't make no finite mind can make up the infinite. This God is altogether glorious. This is the God we worship. What are some applications from this? What what are some things we should take away practically for who God is? We talked about studying the word with zeal and renewed passion because we can't exhaust God's knowledge. but what else? God is terrifying in his judgments, isn't it? Right? So the confession says he doesn't overlook the guilty. What does that mean for sinners? Aren't we guilty? Haven't we broken the law? Is there a law we haven't broken? So what hope is there for the sinner if God is just and doesn't overlook the guilty? The cross, right? Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith in the substitutionary work of the Savior. So ultimately, as we study the confession, it leads us to faith in Christ. And it should lead us to love God and honor God and adore God and to worship God. And then to tell other people about this God. This is the true God. Not the pagan gods that the nations worship. This is the true God. And we love Him and adore Him. Any final thoughts or comments or questions? Alright, next week we'll look at a few more attributes of God. We'll talk about the relations of God and then hopefully come to the triunity of God and then finish up chapter 2. But give it a five or six more years and we'll be done. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the truth that we've studied this morning. And although it is true that we cannot exhaust You, we cannot exhaustively comprehend you and your divine being, yet by your grace and because of divine revelation, we can know some truths about you, even if it is only scratching the surface, yet it is knowledge of God nonetheless. And what a glorious privilege it is for us, your creatures, who are bound to love you, bound to know you, bound to seek you, because you have made us for that purpose, that we might grope after you and seek you and find you. You made us by Yourself, through Yourself, and for Yourself. And what greater purpose is there to live for than to know and love our infinite God? We're thankful that You're not like the gods of the nations. You're not a God who has changeable emotions so that even though You said You'll never leave us nor forsake us, maybe You'll just get really angry with us and won't be able to hold in Your anger and You'll just leave us eventually even though You've promised not to. We're thankful that you don't change. It's not like your promises are going to fail because your character is going to change a hundred years from now. But all of your promises are sure and trustworthy and faithful because you are trustworthy, sure, and faithful because you never change because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we're not consumed. And Lord, we give thanks to You for that. Thank You for Your church and Your people gathered together to hear Your Word and worship You. Uh, we look forward to fellowshipping together. We look forward to coming back in a few minutes to begin our service and to sing, to hear the Word, to take of the Lord's Supper, and again to spend time together and eat donuts and, and drink refreshments and just hang out together and and see Christ in one another. Lord, that is, our, that is our joy, and we thank You for that. Be with us. Bless our service. May it be honoring to You and in Your sight, for which in we pray. Amen.